So while mRNA vaccines have so far proven themselves in that they are good enough for emergency use in a lot of countries, you're probably hearing a lot of people talking about the fact that this is not enough. We need more. More vaccines, different vaccines, cheaper vaccines, easily stored vaccines. And the best match for our checklist seems to be the adenoviral vector vaccines. While Russia and China have both come out with adenoviral vector vaccines that have been authorized for limited use, much of the world is tracking developments from global pharma companies, AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, because it's been said that these vaccines could have better prospects in reaching more parts of the world with more practical distribution logistics than the mRNA vaccines. The Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine has been authorized for use by the regulator So AstraZeneca was first out of the gate with an emergency authorization in the UK in late December. But while many adenoviral vector vaccines have been making significant progress, they've also been producing some curious headlines that are hard to make sense of. This was a vaccine platform that sparked the surprise first approval in the world. Russia just became the first country to officially register a COVID-19 vaccine and declare it ready for use. Some trials needed to be paused for safety scares. Johnson & Johnson said it paused the advanced clinical trial of its experimental vaccine because one of its volunteers suffered an illness. And AstraZeneca made an embarrassing mistake. They acknowledged a manufacturing error that affected trial results. There's definitely a lot to unpack here. Not just the intricate science, but also the convoluted clinical trial events and a lot of expert debate. I'm Sarani Fernando, and this is episode four of The Kovacs Files, the curious case of the adenoviral vector vaccines. The principle of non-replicating viruses is, is for me, a very good one. It gives you good antibody against the virus. It gives you a good cellular immunity. It's not very expensive. It's affordable for a normal fridge. So you could say that it's the perfect vaccine. In in the image, at least, you have everything you need to to give a good vaccine with that. After that, you have to prove it's it's, it's working. And it's a little bit of pity what's, what's happening. And I think that people don't understand. I'm a little bit afraid of the bad effect on the people about this type of very strange study. That was Dr. Yves van Latham, our Belgian expert from last episode. He was talking about AstraZeneca's vaccine and the way he describes it, it really seems like the poster child of vaccines that's possibly going through some teenage years. So what exactly are these vaccines? We lightly touched upon these in the first episode, and we know that these vaccines similarly deliver the genetic code of the spike protein into our cells for us to mount an immune response. But their secret source is the harmless virus they're using to deliver that message. Here's Dr. Deb Fuller again from the University of Washington to explain it in more detail. There is a big similarity between both RNA and viral vector vaccines. They're, they're all recombinant in the sense that you're synthesizing them and engineering them in the lab. And they're all plug and play. They have a vector ready to go and you just pop out one gene, you insert the other one. So there's a lot of commonality between those. Where they differ, of course, is that the viral vector vaccines actually are using a virus to actually deliver that message into the cells. It's a virus, in this case, adenovirus is what we're using for COVID-19, different different flavors of adenoviruses. 
that don't cause any issues in humans. They're not pathogenic and cause disease in humans, but they're able to deliver that genetic material into the cells. Adenoviruses typically cause mild illnesses, like the common cold. There are a bunch of different adenoviruses that have been isolated from a variety of mammalian species ranging from chimpanzees to humans. They can be easily manipulated genetically so that the gene that causes the infection is removed and replaced with another genetic code. They also have other advantages with priming our immune systems, notably the induction of T-cells. So they, in many respects, face a lot of the same sort of development hurdles and the like in terms of optimizing them, getting them to work efficiently. With viral vectors in general, you can grow up viruses to very, very high titers. So the manufacturing process can be a lot less expensive and they are able to produce a lot more doses. Okay, this is actually an important point. So we're going to switch to Dr. Craig Laferriere again, our manufacturing expert, to give us some insight on how we get from virus to vector. Here's the trick about the, these adenovirus vaccines. What they've done with these adenoviruses is they've removed a couple of the genes from the adenovirus and then replaced one of the genes with the sequence for the COVID spike protein. And that adenovirus then actually it can't replicate. Once it, well, they inject it in you, it infects the cell, it goes inside the cell, but it's incapable of replicating. And so it produces this adenovirus, you know, it encodes the messenger RNA that produces the spike protein. Your body recognizes the spike protein as foreign and mounts an immune response. But then that adenovirus is gone, it's dead, and it can't do anything more. So the question is, if that adenovirus can't grow, well, how do you get it to grow in the first place? So he explained that adenoviruses are grown in mammalian cell lines called HEC cells, which stands for human embryonic kidney cells. Now, these cells have part of the genes that the genetically modified adenovirus doesn't have and needs in order to grow. So companies have these large bioreactors, 5 to 20 liters big. They grow these HEC cells in these bioreactors and then they inoculate the hex cells with their genetically modified adenovirus. It's left for about two days so that the adenovirus can grow to large amounts. They're then taken out and put through the purification process for vaccine use. It's a longer procedure to grow up those hex cells, let's say to do a 5,000 liter bioreactor, it takes about a month to grow that many of those mammalian cells. But on the other hand, it's cheap compared to the messenger RNA. All you need to do is feed those hex cells with relatively inexpensive nutrients. And interestingly, the most expensive part of the manufacturing process is the glass vial that the vaccine goes into. Probably the biggest hurdle that these viral vector vaccines are gonna run into is an issue of pre-existing immunity. When you use a viral vector to deliver a gene, that virus is an immunogen itself, and your body starts to make immune responses against the adenovirus carrier. And so as you start to make immune responses against that carrier, that vaccine is going to work less and less effectively if you have to come back for booster doses. Your body's making immunity now against the vaccine. That's going to start to dampen the immunogenicity of the vaccine over time. So they're going to have to get around that. If they want to continue to use this platform for other sorts of infectious diseases, and they've already vaccinated billions of people with their vaccine, 
that's going to be a hurdle that they'll have to overcome. And the other concern is that, say, if the COVID-19 vaccines don't induce durable immunity, for example, you might have to have a shot every year like you do with the flu vaccine. Eventually, that could create a problem. We saw that, for example, flu mist. That was the intranasal flu vaccine. They kept using the same viral backbone and kept just swapping out a new hemagglutinin in the immunogen that has to be updated each year for the flu vaccine. But eventually, people built up immunity against that backbone, and so the vaccine stopped working after a while. Okay, that's interesting. When would we be able to find that out? So there's already been some data. There's a company from China, I believe it's CanSino, who has developed an ADD5-based viral vector to deliver the vaccine. I believe the, the Russian, the Sputnik, is also based in part on adenovirus 5. So in uh, the population, one of the issues is that we are exposed constantly, naturally, to adenovirus 5. We get a little bit of a cold or whatever. It's not something that causes great pathology or anything like that. But that means that a good part of the population already has immunity against adenovirus 5. I mean, in some countries, 50, 70 percent of the population has been exposed to the vector that you use for your vaccine. That was Dr. Sam Sun, who is the director of a nonprofit information platform for COVID-19 called Endemic, and he's also a resident physician at the Texas Medical Center. He's been following all of the drugs and vaccines closely and has been putting analysis out there for researchers, policymakers, and the public. CanSino Biologics, which is a Chinese company, they saw in their early phase clinical trials that their adenovirus number five-based vaccine against COVID-19 wasn't quite as effective in a significant percentage of their participants because those participants had been exposed to that adenovirus in the past. So they're never going to develop any immunity against SARS-CoV-2. They're, they're just going to develop immunity against the adenovirus vector. That's a real concern. J&J and AstraZeneca took a little bit of a different approach in the fact that their particular adenovirus-based vaccines are based on a different adenovirus that is not endemic in the population. People receiving these vaccines will be seeing these adenovirus vectors for the first time, and so more people should be able to respond to these particular vaccines. But down the line, if they have to give multiple booster immunizations, they're going to run into the same problem if they go back into those same people and start to immunize. The main data that we're going to be looking at, and all of these companies I'm sure are looking at, is not just the immune response against the COVID-19 spike protein, but also the immune responses against the vector. And how do those immune responses against the ad vector correlate with the responsiveness overall to the vaccine? So the Russian vaccine Sputnik V is interestingly using two adenoviral vectors, adenovirus 5 and adenovirus 26. The idea for the Sputnik V vaccine was that by using two different adenovirus vectors, one, if someone had seen one of the adenovirus vectors, then maybe they hadn't seen the other one. And then two, if they developed some immunity against the first adenovirus vector, for example, after the, the first shot, then that immunity wouldn't compromise them for the second shot because they wouldn't have been exposed to the second type of adenovirus. 
So Russia's vaccine Sputnik V was met with some scepticism in the West when it was first approved for use in July, and that was because it hadn't completed large-scale trials. If you remember, Putin also gave it to his daughter. There are some concerns being raised around the world over this announcement. Apparently, the Russian vaccine has only been given to about 100 people, and that is far, far fewer than the CDC requires for phase But since then, it has generated more credibility among experts. So I asked Sam what his thoughts were on all of that. They did publish in the Lancet some of their phase one and two data. They seem comparable to some of the data that we have from Moderna and Pfizer and AstraZeneca's phase one and two trials, meaning neutralizing antibodies were generated in response to the vaccine. I think them using two different adenovirus vectors is a reasonable approach. I don't think there's anything wrong with the Sputnik V vaccine. I just feel like the way the Russian regulatory agencies authorized it for use before they started a phase three trial was probably not the best way to go about it. So AstraZeneca and Oxford University have a vaccine that is using an adenoviral vector from chimpanzees. And this vaccine was in the spotlight as a front runner for much of 2020. AstraZeneca was one of those companies to get massively bankrolled by government funding, which has made it possible for this vaccine to race through the clinical trials. And the company has already agreed to supply hundreds of millions of doses to countries around the globe once it's authorized. That includes the UK, the US, countries in the EU, Canada, Australia, and India. After a few hiccups with some non-vaccine-related adverse events, they were able to deliver some interim results late last year, but they were a little bit confusing. There were two groups of volunteers who took part, however. The first group received two identical doses of the vaccine, but because of a manufacturing error, the second group received half a dose and then a full dose of the vaccine. First of all, that is a huge error for a top company like that to make under any circumstances, let alone for a such high-stakes trial being watched by the globe. But anyway, AstraZeneca released the results of two combined phase three trials conducted in the UK and Brazil across 23,000 participants. The two full doses were tested on around 8,900 participants, while the half-dose full-dose regimen was tested in around 2,700 participants. Now, the gap between the two doses was between a month and 12 weeks, and the control group actually got the approved meningococcal vaccine. In the two trials, AstraZeneca waited to count 131 cases before looking at the interim results. AstraZeneca said that in the group that received the two full doses, the vaccine was 62% effective, but in the group that received the half dose followed by the full dose, in other words, the Erinus group, the efficacy rate was 90%. So somehow AstraZeneca packaged up their results and slapped on an overall 70% efficacy rate for its vaccine. But the integrity of that data, as it stands, has been questioned by experts all over the globe. At the present time, the data of the publication for, I think, nearly everybody are very strange. When you see in the same data the efficacy of a very small group of a little bit more than 2,000 people in a large group, and you are between 60 and 90 persons, so the mix it's 70 persons. And that's, that's a little bit a pity. I actually thought the data was quite disappointing. That was Dr. Nikolai Petrovsky again from Flinders University. I mean, the, the, the major uh, group or, or the standard group only had 62% protection. There was a small subgroup where they got a, 
an estimate of 90% protection, but of course we still don't know if that's true or, or is that just an aberrant statistical finding in a small number of, of people in a subgroup. When you're dealing with very small subject sizes, then the error bars around that point estimate are massive. And so if, if you actually calculate the error around that 90%, it could be, say, from 40% to 95%. I sort of look at this and sort of think, well, could this make regulators a little bit nervous that they're going to be approving something that hasn't fully been studied? Ultimately, you need a solid result. And, and having one little subgroup perform apparently a bit differently to your main group, which is where they were putting their money, based on their phase one and phase two data and their animal data, and then saying, oh, we're not going to explain why our main strategy failed or gave such poor protection. We're going to distract everyone with this small subgroup, which looks better. So AstraZeneca's UK emergency authorization was based on the 62% efficacy seen in the main group. Now, interestingly, what the UK authorities have recommended is that many high-risk people get the first dose and the second dose can be received within 12 weeks, as opposed to that shorter time frame of a month. You might recall that the UK has a new and very virulent strain of COVID right now, so they're indeed in huge emergency mode. Now AstraZeneca will go to other global regulators to get more emergency authorizations, followed by the full approvals. But the experts I spoke to aren't so sure that the data, as it currently stands, warrants it to be unleashed so widely and definitely not for an official approval on this confusing data set. A regulator has to look at, well, where are the numbers and what was the outcome? And the answer is it was 62% protection, which is very poor. You certainly wouldn't be getting a regulator, I don't think, to approve that vaccine based on the dismal result for the main group and then a potentially aberrant result on a small group. What Oxford really have to do is say, why did their major group in their phase three essentially fail? Because 62%, I mean, is pretty bad, especially when you have vaccines that are are hitting 90 to 95% already. You know, if they can pull back and do a large phase three using that modified dose strategy, then maybe in six and 12 months they can come back. I really feel like for the AstraZeneca vaccine, there's kind of an issue of like national pride at play, you could say. I mean, AstraZeneca is one of the largest, if not the largest, UK company. Uh, was developed in collaboration with the University of Oxford. So when I see the the defense of the AstraZeneca vaccine trial, I I see that a lot of those folks are are based in the UK. It's probably a little more political than you want to get into. But just in terms of the the efficacy of the AstraZeneca vaccine trial, it is a bit disappointing. It's considerably less than the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine, which might have been okay three or four months ago. If that's all we had to work with, then I don't think anyone would be particularly excited, but they would still use it. I don't see the FDA viewing the AstraZeneca data favorably. It might be a vaccine that's used in other countries, particularly during the first several months while the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine are scaling up production. AstraZeneca has a second phase three trial, which it's conducting in the US in 30,000 patients. And that's due to report in late January. 
and that might shed more light on the real efficacy profile of this vaccine and whether that's solid enough to go to the regulators for an authorization. I think that we need very quickly another study with the full protocol doing a half dose and a full dose. The problem is that means several months later on the market and that we don't know exactly how this vaccine shall be agreed or not by the AMA and the FDA. And I think that's a real problem for a very promising type of vaccine, at least for what I think. So I asked Dr. Fuller what she thought was happening with these doses on an immunological level. First, we have to qualify that half-dose group, which seemed to be around the 90%. It's actually a very much smaller number of people that they've tested that. So, so that's sort of very preliminary evidence. Again, it's sort of like the other vaccines. We really probably have to wait until we have at least 10 thousand people who have received that particular immunization regimen to see if that particular 90% will hold out. But let's just say for, for the sake of argument, it does. And the low dose priming ends up giving you a 90% efficacy, much higher efficacy than what the high dose priming. So I can speculate on possible mechanisms, purely speculation. There's two different ways we can look at it. Number one, either the high dose is inducing something that dampens the booster dose, or the low dose is stimulating something that enhances the booster dose. So it's one of the two different things. So let's, let me elaborate a little bit on that. Remember we talked a little bit about that pre-existing immunity being an issue with viral vectored vaccines. She explained that the first high dose of the vaccine might be inducing immunity against the vector itself. And then when it's time for the booster dose, it just doesn't work because there's heightened immunity against that vector. A lower first dose would reduce that amount of antibody directed at the vector and would allow the booster dose to have an additive effect. On the flip side, she said that in following with the prime and boost theory, often our immune systems work better when it first sees a small amount of antigen followed by a higher amount on second exposure. So perhaps the lower dose was able to better prime the immune system with memory cells to respond better to that booster dose. There's a lot of different hypotheses, but those are, I think, two of them that that will be addressed. Now, when I sort of hear all of this, it seems to me like this would be something that would be played around with in earlier clinical trials to get the optimal dose response before jumping into large phase three trials. It does seem like though they made a bit of a mistake, it may have been sort of a silver lining kind of mistake, considering it yielded better responses. But it's all still just a bit messy to process with the urgency that is the pandemic. It gives you a good way to investigate the strange half dose than the full dose. But what about the feeling that people, scientists, but also other people, may have about this vaccine? And uh, I'm a little bit afraid of the bad effect on the common people and the general practitioner about this type of very strange study. So as AstraZeneca figures itself out, we do have a second stab at getting a winning adenoviral vector vaccine. And we should be hearing interim results from Johnson & Johnson's vaccine later this month. It's using a human adenoviral vector and might be a bit of a game changer because it may only need to be given with one shot. That's big for a pandemic. Right now, all of the vaccines that we're looking at are prime and booster. That means that you're going to require six to eight weeks to develop immunity. You're going to have to have people come back for a second shot, and sometimes they're not as compliant with the second immunization, especially if the first one hurt. 
I asked Dr. Van Latham what his thoughts were on J&J's secret to getting a one-dose vaccine when every other vaccine needs two doses. I don't have a good explanation why it's a plan since the beginning on one dose, but I'm not sure that the other vaccine could not be given in, in one dose at the same time. The data of Pfizer after one dose were also very good. So people say, okay, that's not a reason to give only one dose. But people were going on the two-dose shame, and maybe one dose is enough. You, you remember a lot of vaccines where they've got in two or three doses, and after that, they were going to one or two doses. I'm not sure the same thing is not right also for, for other vaccines. Yeah, I thought that there was a special thing with maybe Johnson Johnson's formula. I know they're using a human adenoviral vector. As you know, they use these vectors also in the Ebola vaccine, but the Ebola vaccine is to be given in, in two doses. See, I don't make a mistake. He's right. J&J has an Ebola vaccine that is approved for medical use that uses the same adenoviral vector, the human AD26 vector. But that vector is used for the prime shot, and then a different viral vector from a company called Bavarian Nordic is used for the booster shot. I don't know why they were so sure that their vaccine could work in one dose with the same vector for COVID and that they need two doses for the Ebola. I personally don't know why there is a difference with the same vector for two different diseases and with nearly the same vector with two different companies for the same disease. So as we've been talking a bit about the pre-existing immunity to viral vectors, I asked him what he thought about Johnson & Johnson's vector. The question about the cross-reaction with antibodies against the the, the, the vector had no importance in the the, the Ebola vaccine. Clearly, it it, it was working. So it it, it seems that it's a more theoretical problem than a practical one, but it's still to be demonstrated in a large amount of people. It should be confirmed. Basically, we need data in a large amount of people to make sure and confirm that the response against the vector isn't going to delete the benefits of the vaccine. So Johnson & Johnson's phase three trial was fully enrolled with 45,000 participants as of mid-December. And as COVID cases get counted, results are expected by late January. But actually, Sam mentioned a recent update that could put its advantages into question. The main update from that is their first trial was called Ensemble. They're starting a second phase three trial called Ensemble 2 that is using a two-dose regimen. That trial is enrolling 30,000 patients worldwide, and Johnson & Johnson has said it's a complementary pivotal trial. I feel like some folks viewed that as a sign of weakness, meaning maybe they weren't confident in their single-dose regimen generating enough immune response to provide protection against COVID-19, so they thought they needed to use kind of a two-dose regimen. I think that the strengths, it has more lenient storage requirements. You can just use fridge temperatures and the trial can actually be completed sooner because if folks are only receiving a single dose vaccine, then you don't have to wait that extra month to start counting COVID-19 cases. So look out for the data at the end of the month where the world will find out whether it can have a single dose COVID vaccine. You also might recall that AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson's trials had to be stopped in late 2020 while they evaluated some serious adverse events. AstraZeneca's trial had two patients develop some rare neurological symptoms and Johnson & Johnson's had one event which was not disclosed. 
What's your take on the safety events that occurred in both AstraZeneca's trial and Johnson Johnson's? I think they ended up determining they were not related to the vaccine. There's always going to be, when you get to tens of thousands of people, adverse events happening. It could be a heart attack. It could be a neurological disorder, et cetera. So they have to look at that data closely and determine is, could that be actually related to the vaccine or not? We have to keep in mind that a lot of these vaccines, a phase three trial is done in tens of thousands of people. So any sort of adverse event like that, you can pick it up if it's a one in 10,000 event, okay? But if it's gonna be a one in 100,000 event, we may not see that until we see the mass vaccinations. And so that's just something that every vaccine that has been developed throughout time. We wouldn't know for sure if there are rare events associated with that vaccine until after it's put in people. In the publication of AstraZeneca's interim analysis of four randomized controlled trials all pulled together, there were really no major safety events unique to the vaccine arm. Just like the mRNA vaccines, they do have a reactogenicity profile. So that's things like headache and fever. But they seem to be relatively mild and lower than expected for this vaccine. Sam also mentioned that what bodes well for J&J's vaccine on the safety side of things is that its vaccine platform technology, ADVAC, has been used for the development of other vaccines, including Ebola, Zika, RSV, and HIV candidates. So over 100,000 patients have taken vaccines using this technology without a concern. We know that it's a cheap vaccine at the classic temperature, which is totally affordable everywhere in the world, including Africa, Asia, and so on. In the image, at least, you have everything you need to to give a good vaccine with that. So while these vaccines haven't been the first out of the gate and have their inherent issues, the scientific and public health communities are still putting a lot of weight on these vaccines in terms of their future role to combat the global pandemic. So could a little bit more refining and knowledge around these adenoviral vector vaccines render them the global favourite? As we wait for more data and milestones for these vaccines in the coming months, later in the series we'll also explore where these vaccines sit among other vaccines when it comes to the global supply and distribution. So keep tuning in. Thanks to my guests, Dr. Yves Van Latham, Dr. Deborah Fuller, Dr. Craig Laferriere, Dr. Nikolai Petrovsky, and Dr. Sam Sun for their insight on this episode. Next episode, we'll look at the next wave of vaccines, including some old established favorites like the protein-based vaccines and inactivated vaccines, and we'll also look at the futuristic DNA vaccine. See you next time on The Kovacs Files.